Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where you can hear the GC team discuss and debate topical developments in public policy and regulation from around the world. Hello and welcome back to Global Council Podcasts. My name is Alexander Smotrov and I'm the Practice Director for Central and Eastern Europe, Russia and Eurasia here at Global Council. This week marks the first anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. It has been an extremely challenging and painful year for all the Ukrainians, but the country has shown immense resilience to the invasion, mobilizing all the internal resources and external support, which is uh, even more important than the current circumstances, to keep the everyday life and the economy going. It has been also a testing year for Russia and the whole world. For the first time in modern history, the economy of such a size has been effectively boxed in, and this decoupling from the global economy continues to produce shockwaves uh, around the globe. Sadly, the war is far from over, and there is no clear prospect for a ceasefire, let alone a peace settlement inside. So today we will not dwell too much on the military scenarios or geopolitical considerations, uh, but instead we will try to focus on the practical implications for businesses, looking back to the past year and looking forward to the months and years to come. Joining me today are my colleagues who monitor the political and business environment in the region on a daily basis, Magnus Obermann and Alexander van der Wusten, based in London and in Brussels. And in the next half an hour, we will look into the current state of play on sanctions, the continued businesses' exit strategies and relocation from Russia, and the prospect of Ukrainian reconstruction and the role of international businesses in it. Let me start with sanctions. The first of them were introduced even before the invasion, as soon as Russia recognized the rebel republics in the Donbass region last February, a few days before the actual uh, invasion. Since then, we've seen multiple rounds of personal and sectoral sanctions from the US, the EU, UK, and their allies. Magnus, uh, over to you. Can you tell us where these international sanctions have been most effective so far? Thank you, Alexander. Yes, as you said, there has been um, a whole package of measures uh, implemented uh, to force Russia to bend the knee. But out of all these measures, I would say the most effective so far have been sanctions um, in the energy field and the technology field and also the financial sanctions imposed against Russia. So what does this mean? In the field of energy, um, the like-minded Western alliance has essentially banned uh, imports of all Russian fossil fuels except nuclear or introduced price caps for Russian uh, for such Russian products. And technology we see that Russia is now struggling to produce advanced industry goods because there's, for example, no uh, provision of IT services from, from Western companies. And this has also hit Russia's military uh, sector of the economy. Financial sanctions have been very impactful because the West has frozen several hundreds of billions of uh, Russian central bank assets, which are uh, no, no longer at the disposal of the Russian central bank. And it is yet uncertain what will happen with this money. 
thanks. It uh, looks like a comprehensive uh, package, and it's uh, not the first, not the second. So the European Union has announced the tenth round of sanctions this week. So are there any areas left where uh, the sanctions can go further? Any untapped opportunities uh, where um, all the member states still can uh, go and do more? Yes, definitely. I would say there's quite a lot left what the EU could sanction. Of course, there's always a big political debate in the EU when it comes to what should be incorporated in the sanctions packages. But as I alluded to earlier, the EU has uh, banned all Russian fossil fuels except uh, nuclear fuels. And one uh, very obvious target that some EU member states uh, advocate for to be included in the next uh, sanctions package is uh, Rosatom, the Russian uh, state-owned nuclear company, which uh, has actually last year increased its sales by around 20%, and especially China has has really uh, quadrupled imports um, of Russian uh, nuclear fuels. So that would be uh, a very uh, important sanction. Uh, And what are the positions and the unity of the member states on this type of uh, sanctions? Uh, Will they be able to agree on this? So broadly speaking, what we have seen over the last few months, over the last year, is that uh, some member states, um, many of which are geographically located in uh, the east and the north um, of the EU, uh, would like uh, more, would like to see more ambitious uh, EU sanctions. Whereas some other member states, uh, some of which are located um, in the west of the EU, are a bit more cautious because the partly because the economic ramifications for them would be uh, more severe. So in the case of Rosatom, for example. A country like France uh, relies on uh, Rosatom uh, quite a lot for its uh, nuclear energy, and therefore there are certain uh, political and economic sensitivities that should be taken into account and which obviously complicate um, a deal uh, to to sanction such an entity. Yes, and we also have uh, Hungary, uh, for example, where Rosatom uh, is building new um, nuclear power capacities but there might be a way, uh, for example, as indicated by, uh, if I'm not mistaken, the Lithuanian foreign minister, for example, to apply a similar model when uh, some uh, member states received some derogations and can continue the existing contracts, for example, without making new ones. This was applied or at least uh, suggested for the oil and gas um, uh, sanctions and it might be applied further on. So... But the fundamental principle of this uh, unit in some kind of compromise between the member states will still be um, uh, still be observed. And another big and contentious issue when it comes to sanctions is the um, Russian frozen assets, which you mentioned uh, before, both the central bank, but also some uh, corporate and uh, private uh, assets as well. So this is the area where further sanctions and further measures like confiscation of these assets could be applied. The Ukrainians, for example, have uh, advocated for a long time that this uh, money could be used uh, for the reconstruction uh, efforts later on. What are the um, existing hesitations and legal hurdles uh, to this to become a a reality? How likely uh, are these confiscations and other um, more drastic measures um, in in the nearest future. 
Yes, I think for the time being, it is uh, still rather unlikely that uh, the EU uh, at least will go ahead and confiscate these assets that so far have, have only been frozen. Uh, on the US side, it looks a bit different because the US has different legislation and for the US, it's easier to actually confiscate rather than just freeze um, these assets. But for both uh, the EU and the US and the UK and all the other like-minded international partners, um, there are significant legal hurdles and there are also political concerns. Um, and one thing that we shouldn't forget is that even if all the frozen Russian uh, state assets and, and private assets were to be put towards the reconstruction of Ukraine, that would not suffice. So uh, in, in either way, uh, more money will be needed. But on the question of confiscation, I think what will be key is a broad international consensus of uh, like-minded partners, uh, possibly backed up um, legally uh, if Russia were, for example, um, to be indicted by one of the international uh, courts or maybe by an ad hoc tribunal for the uh, war crimes, alleged war crimes it is uh, committing in, in Ukraine, that would certainly help to make the case for a, a confiscation of these assets because then the measure would be seen as, as less arbitrary and uh, it would be easier to, to justify it politically and, and legally. Yes, and also uh, another uh, important elephant in the room question is to what extent any measures like this might send a signal to other uh, big um, jurisdictions uh, around the globe, uh, including China, the Middle Eastern countries, India, and so many others, who might uh, have um, stored their uh, foreign exchange assets abroad and whether it might prompt them to withdraw and rethink their strategies and, again, shake the global financial systems uh, further. Yes, also we shouldn't forget that the return of these frozen assets could be or is meant to be an incentive uh, for, for Russia to stop the war in Ukraine. So if you take these assets away, you essentially also take the incentive for Russia, or one incentive for Russia to stop the war away. And at least um, uh, in theory, uh, the sanctions are only in place uh, as long as uh, Russia uh, wages war in Ukraine and occupies Ukrainian territory. So again, in theory, if, if Russia stopped doing that, uh, the reason for the sanctions um, uh, would also cease to exist. And, and therefore, that's another political point that should be taken into account. Yeah, this is very important uh, to know that kind of sanctions applied as a punishment, and then it, uh, this modus operandi should uh, should be um, uh, kept in in mind. Uh, so, Alex, uh, I know that you've been watching Belarus um, for quite a while, and obviously we've seen similar processes um, in relation to Belarus. So, what are the difference uh, and similarity between the uh, Western sanctions against Russia and Belarus, and where? Uh, where uh, what we can expect in the next uh, weeks and months on Belarus. Thanks, uh, Alexander. Well, we can already see that the approach taken to Belarus is is, is largely similar to to the to the sanctions that uh, that have been introduced or imposed on or Russia. They're just like one one step behind. So in the new sanctions package, we see very similarly we see sanctions on on the, on the energy sector affecting oil, coal steel products, gold. We see export bans on dual-use goods uh, that could be used for military purposes. 
various trade restrictions, tra restrictions on luxury goods, um, and, um, and 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 other kinds of measures. There there are exceptions on, on medicinal and agricultural uh, products, which is which is noteworthy. They are expected at least in the next sanctions pa sanctions package. Um, um, and the sanctions so far they have been uh, related. This is important to note, and they've been related mostly to stopping the export of Belarusian goods through EU ports. But a new aspect might be that uh, in the new package we will see now um, entities uh, um, measures against entities, non-Belarusian entities that help the Belarusian uh, authorities to evade sanctions. So very similarly, we see possible, we will see possible measures against a Dubai-based company um, that is um, similarly helping to evade, uh, help Russia evade uh, the sanctions. So it will be interesting to see whether such a similar approach will now also be taken with regards to Belarus. Yes, absolutely. And this is actually a very interesting um, development. Uh, while the sanctions are introduced, uh, it's one thing, but to ensure their implementation and enforcement is another thing. And we've seen a lot of efforts uh, from the EU and the UK in particular to follow uh, the uh, strict example of the US, for example, uh, on, on, on this. But now uh, I would like to switch a little bit from the legal area, from uh, the sanctions to a wider business compliance with the new um, regimes. And not only in the legal terms, but also in the reputational terms. And we've seen such a massive uh, exodus of the businesses from uh, Russia and also from Belarus, actually. Uh, what prompted this and how companies approach it uh, being pressurized to a certain point by their shareholders, by their home governments, by the public, as well by the media and so on. So far, we've seen uh, a lot of different examples, but um, Alex, if you are to summarize the key strategies, the key approaches of the Western, uh, and not only Western, but kind of wider international businesses to uh, their presence in uh, Russia. So what, uh, what have they been so far? So yes, so, so far we've seen three main routes for for divesting from from russia so the first um and this has been chosen by companies as, as coca-cola nike converse and, and others is to stop new exports to russia and to gradually exit after the uh, remaining stocks of goods are sold uh, the second route and this is so far the most popular one is to transfer control over russian assets to the local management often at a nominal price and to continue business activities in some form, so 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 using the original equipment and IP, um, there has been the highly publicized case of McDonald's. Uh, other examples include uh, France's Michelin, so a tire manufacturer, and and Kone, which is a Finnish lifts producer. Um, the third option um, is to sell assets to a company from a third country deemed friendly by Russia, and um, the latest examples include a, a sale of Russian assets uh, of a U.S. Uh, goods manufacturer, manufacturer Whirlpool uh, to Turkey's um, Arcelik, um, and a possible takeover as well of BP and Shell shares in Russian JVs by Indian companies. Um, uh, China has also been active uh, in this sphere, so we've seen um, um, 
China's mobile handset manufacturers. They have an increased mar- they've uh, increased their market share to replace Apple and Samsung. Uh, well, Huawei, they, they've announced a massive uplift in its, in its Russian presence. So these are broadly speaking the three, the three approaches. And do the companies uh, leave any backdoor open for them or some kind of um, clauses or provisions for themselves to return to Russia if circumstances to meet? And what is the time horizon for this? Uh, so have we seen anything uh, on that front at all? So yeah, definitely we see companies um, approaching approaching this. Yeah, differently we see companies that explicitly include a, a buyback option. Uh, so for example, uh, Danone, which is um, quite deeply embedded in Russia's supply chains and owns several uh, local brands, brands. Um, they have um, they have recently uh, changed their 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 ownership structure. So they're now keeping twenty five percent. And, and, uh, and a board seat in their in their local business, but and also they're keeping their baby food division, for example, which is exempt from sanctions restrictions. And this scheme, uh, which includes a buyback option, uh, could significantly significantly narrow uh, the pool of potential buyers, um, but pose also more reputational questions. So it's a kind of sophisticated approach taken by a by a European investor with a with a significant footprint. And, uh, and assets in the market and potentially here in this case in case of the known that they foresee that they might return in a, in a five to ten year uh, um, time horizon but this is obviously um, uh, very hard to predict at this point any any strategy any thinking about what uh, what the ex- exact time horizon should be is uh, is um, is uh, very theoretical at this point Exactly. This is a very important point to make when um, companies or others ask a question. So what's the time horizon of planning? So at the moment, probably no one knows. And if someone tells you they know, um, you should probably take this with a pinch of salt, uh, to be honest. But we can um, hear and see uh, examples of other countries in the past. So there was no precedent, a direct like-for-like precedent, but there were some other uh, cases, for example, with Iran after its recent opening up attempt uh, and uh, other examples when you can see which sectors at least uh, return to the market first. And often this is exactly the fast-moving consumer goods sectors, some retail and trade, which are asset uh, light, not in uh, not requiring any investments on the ground or asset ownership and so on. But in the case of Russia, it's still unpredictable and this reputational risks might still be too high, even if there is some kind of political settlement or resemblance of a political settlement. So, yeah, this is still an open question. But if we look uh, at the business restructuring or rethinking of their presence in the region, uh, by leaving Russia, it doesn't mean they leave the area, the wider Eurasia region or Eastern European region. And Alex, I know that you've uh, watched closely um, the neighboring countries and markets. So how were they affected by um, the company's relocations? Uh, from Russia, so where um, the, this uh, businesses are looking at and where the uh, companies um, develop 
their new business to compensate for the loss of the Russian R&R market, if it's possible at all. Yeah, so just to take this step by step and zoom out a little bit. So Russia's neighbors, um, and, and they are often connected to the Russian market, so there's still lots of economic activity with, uh, with the Russian market within frameworks like the Eurasian Economic Union, for example, sort of customs agreement, etc. So um, um, they are, first of all, very important for, for Russia in terms of uh, enabling them to still import um, um, Western goods through their parallel, parallel import scheme. So this would allow Russia to, um, to get Western goods without the, without the explicit uh, approval of the, of the IP holder. Um, at the same time, there's also a risk for these countries that by, you know, uh, facilitating such a, such a, such a scheme, they would fall under secondary U.S. sanctions. Uh, so there is a very complicated legal environment they're operating in. At the same time, they are trying to, you know, profit or take the advantage the best they can from the, from the business exodus we've seen from, from Russia. So businesses, uh, divesting from Russia, um, and they have multiple times countries in central Asia, in the South Caucasus have stated their support for, um, um, for, you know, supporting businesses that want to, that intend to relocate from Russia and that are looking for other opportunities in the, in the region. Um, this is especially visible in the IT sector. You know, an asset light industry, so very easy for for many companies that want to, you know, relocate their their staff um, quickly, uh, um, quite easy to do for various relocation programs. And yeah, more broadly, we've seen we've seen the Kazakhstan government, for example, um, saying that they are, they are in talks with dozens of companies interested in permanently relocating operations to to their country, not only in IT, the manufacture manufacturing sector as well the automotive industry, etc. Um, it is a question to what extent these markets will be attractive in the long term for, for companies uh, that, that will still want to serve the Russian and the reach wider regional markets. Um, it obviously remains to be seen whether uh, after the war um, the, these countries will remain or, or be a seriously interesting uh, business environment. Um, it now looks that companies um, who are um, um, uh, relocating, um, um, they have had already an established legal entity in the, the, the in the country like Kazakhstan, for example. So many um, Russian-based uh, Western firms, they could quite easily move operations because they already had a legal presence in the country. And those that didn't have that, they, following the war, are, were so to say scared off completely from the region and and are um, you know um, working on a full divestment strategy. So not even considering markets in Central Asia, South Caucasus, and in the most extreme cases, Central and Eastern Europe. Although maybe they they should they should do that. Yes, and we already um, see uh, the results of this uh, divestment and exodus uh, trickling down into the company's reports for 2022, uh, with lots of losses being written off or strategies rethought. But probably, as you said, um, the companies who have a little bit of a nuanced approach and consider different options in the region might be in a more advantageous position generally. And now in this kind of... Inter uh, media period, but also um, after the war when they can quickly reassess uh, their plans. And uh, obviously the Russian market is still too big to ignore, but at the moment for obvious reasons, 
uh, the companies need to uh, readjust. We already uh, touched upon a little bit uh, about uh, who fills the gap uh, of the companies who um, leave Russia. And uh, Magnus, I know that you have a bit uh, more examples of this. And uh, can you briefly uh, give us a bit of a kind of understanding? So where uh, different uh, options here stand and who benefits most from, uh, from the new um, opportunities in the market? Yes, of course. That depends a little bit on the strategy that um, leaving countries uh, choose to, to exit the Russian market. But broadly speaking, I think there are three different um, scenarios, and I'll give you three um, examples from the transport sectors. First of all, there is a scenario in which the gaps cannot be filled. So, for example, in the Russian aviation industry, we see that uh, Russian airlines operate more than 150 Sukhoi superjets, uh, which have aircraft, uh, which have engines uh, produced um, by French engineers. And the Russian engineers cannot really, at this point, uh, maintain or repair them. And replacing these engines with Russian ones would be extremely expensive. In fact, in some cases, so the cost would be higher than the cost of a new aircraft. Uh, so that uh, and developing a new engine is, is also not economic uh, either. So Russian engineers are left with very little choice but to try and, and learn how to maintain and repair these engines, which will take some time. And for the time being, there's, there's no good solution for that. That's the first scenario. The second scenario, I would say, is a scenario in which uh, Russian companies uh, can fill the gap. Um, one example for this scenario would be um, the railway uh, company Sinara, who is um, supposed to take over from Siemens. Uh, when it comes to uh, planning and building high-speed uh, train connections between Moscow and St. Petersburg and potentially uh, other Russian cities. Uh, and it looks like they will be able to do that, but obviously time will tell if they can actually uh, manage to yeah, construct these, um, uh, to, to do these projects. And a third scenario, uh, which we've already touched upon a little bit, is a scenario in which uh, companies from so-called friendly countries fill the gaps, especially China. And here, I would say the Russian car market is quite interesting because we see that all the Western car companies have uh, withdrawn, at least temporarily, from Russia. Uh, domestic production has collapsed. And we really see, uh, if one looks at the data, Chinese customs data, Russian customs data, that uh, Chinese producers have increased their exports to Russia. So in a way, Chinese companies are filling the void. Yes, uh, thank you, uh, Magnus. And you touched upon the sectors um, which are relatively flexible in what um, the companies there might uh, do. But there are also a number of sectors, the so-called strategic sectors, where uh, companies from um, from foreign jurisdictions have uh, very little room for maneuver. And what happens to these companies and how, how they manage the situation and what is the outlook for them in the, in the nearest future? Yes, correct. So companies from so-called strategically important sectors cannot simply withdraw. They actually need the uh, approval of the Russian president, which is uh, difficult to get at this point. 
Um, so for these companies, uh, it is almost um, impossible to fully uh, withdraw from Russia. And even beyond that, I would say it has become a bit more difficult to leave the Russian market because um, companies from unfriendly countries cannot simply sell their shares in Russia. And there are very strict requirements um, when they want to do that. For example, the selling price may not exceed 50% of the estimated uh, market value of the company and uh, domestic uh, buyers are, are given some advantages such as that they can uh, split their payments over various years and yeah this has really become um, a difficult uh, financially speaking and economically speaking for many uh, western companies to just leave russia which is the reason probably why uh, many have chosen not to do that at the moment so overall and data are a bit um, uh, difficult to obtain here, but uh, estimates suggest that perhaps only uh, 8% of European companies have fully left uh, the Russian market. Um, so majority uh, remains in, in some form or another, at least for the time being, because the withdrawal has, has become so difficult. Yeah, and... Uh... Many commentators interpret this as um, also as if these companies have been held as a political collateral to the measures um, which uh, Western countries and their allies apply uh, to Russia. And we can see lots of familiar company names on this uh, lists uh, published uh, by, by the Russian government, mostly in the energy sector and the financial services sector and many others. And a similar trend uh, is uh, actually observed in Belarus, where uh, many companies are prevented from selling their stakes and leaving the market. Uh, and this also includes a lot of technology and IT companies in uh, Belarus uh, who previously benefited uh, very uh, competitive and attractive uh, terms of uh, the high technology park in Belarus and uh, many other um tax breaks and uh, other privileges uh, in the market. So yeah, now they have a tough uh, choice and um, also, oh, you know, prospect for this are not very uh, clear yet what they can do and what they cannot. But um, finally, uh, I would like us to talk a little bit uh, about Ukraine itself. Obviously, uh, it has seen a lot of destruction and disruption of its normal life but uh, people uh, in Ukraine and abroad already start talking about the reconstruction efforts about the opportunities for the country which um, the next few years will bring hopefully so Alex I would like to ask you, uh, is this a right time to start talking about the reconstruction uh, as the war is still being fought in the battleground? That is a, that is a very good question. And um, obviously there's, there's now a lot of risk uh, on the ground for, for, for private investors. So with the Russian shelling, obviously the continued risk of Russian shelling, even in relatively safe areas, in Ukraine basically just needing emergency funds to just keep going in the short term. Um, but we now already see that it's, it, it's time to think about basics and, and that means creating sort of right longer term invest, investment framework that would allow the private sector at some point to to come in. It's obvious that 
public institution and public money would have to come in first. But uh, considering the, the, the size and the costs uh, that are now estimated uh, for the reconstruction effort, private sector money will be, will be key. Um, yeah, and businesses, they want to know primarily. So who decides on the, on the tendering, on the contracts, and, and how would they apply? And this is what's currently being debated. So a major milestone seems to be the, um, the establishment um, um, earlier this month of a multi-donor coordination platform uh, uh, done by the EU, US, and the G7 with a secretariat in, in, in Brussels and in Kiev. And there's a steering committee um, involving high-level representatives of, again, the G7, US, and the EU that will regular, regularly meet. Um, and um, yeah, from the meetings there, some clarity is expected on how the first tranches of reconstruction money will be spent. Um, this will obviously be macro financial assistance in the short term, but going forward, there will be more clarity on the actual reconstruction, postal reconstruction efforts. And obviously also more information on what tenders might look like, etc. So yeah, the institutional setup and the stakeholder landscape is likely to, to change uh, dramatically still and transform. Um, and for example, it's still unclear in what, yeah, to what extent um, international financial institutions will be involved. So this is definitely an area to be watched closely. Uh, but yeah, with the secretariat at least yeah, partly based in, in Brussels, this suggests that while yeah, missing a, a, a leading political figure to move negotiations forward when needed on the European side, the EU or the European Commission could at least be gearing up to play a, a key role in coordinating or overseeing uh, reconstruction assistance. Yeah, and the cost of this reconstruction efforts um, is still unknown and every month or two we have an updated number uh, which is only growing. So last summer we were talking about $350 billion, then in the autumn uh, we were already talking about five to uh, $600 billion. and I'm sure there will be uh, further increases in this number of estimates. Um, but um, also, it's not only the question of um, businesses footing this bill and um, funding uh, various opportunities in different sectors. They also need to be able to tackle the risks uh, on the ground and rely on some support and expertise of the international financial institutions as they uh, observe the situation in the country and you mentioned this uh, before as well so what are the key obstacles or key things which international businesses need to have guarantees on before they can uh, be sure that they can invest in the reconstruction and uh, not jeopardize uh, their um, efforts yeah so so you're right so yeah Investing now or in the short term is a, is a, is a very risky endeavor, um, and and war risk insurance is is now the the main issue or guarantee that would help um, these early movers, um, businesses that want to go in or yeah are able to go in as, as fast as possible, um, and yeah currently there is a lack of clarity on whether insurance um, 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 will be covered by multilateral organizations like the you know the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development or or the or the World Bank. Um, there are 
already a few um, public sector providers that are uh, taking claims for Ukraine-bound investment, uh, such as uh, the World Bank's Multilateral Investment Guarantee Agency that has also experience with working in, in post-war Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, but the World Bank is now only able to do pilot projects and cover investments of uh, yeah, a limited amount of investments, around $30 million, I believe. This still could be broadened, so there are reports about the World Bank creating a yeah up to 200 million trust fund providing um, a first loss war risk guarantees for for um, direct foreign investors in Ukraine, um, um, and there's also for example national institutions. So for example, Germany's economic ministry is currently um, um, also on the ground, but it's only insuring contracts and not investments, uh, and it's only insuring investment projects when German companies apply. Um, so yeah, so the Ukrainian government is therefore yeah, pushing hard for a new international insurance program for foreign investors that would really deliver this this guarantee for 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 international businesses that that uh, want and can go in. Um, and this could still come in different forms. So this could be a multi-government initiative. So possibly somehow connected to this multi-donor coordinating body, or it could be a public-private partnership program um, in, in, in the area of infrastructure, for example. So this is still to be to be watched. Yes, yeah, still a lot of moving pieces here. So can you um, briefly tell us about one or two events uh, this year which we need to watch in terms of being the milestones for further decision-making or commitments on the reconstruction side, both from the governments and from the private sector? Yeah, so so most immediately there is a, a meeting of um, the steering committee of this uh, donor coordination platform in, in March. Um, so possibly a, uh, a private sector advisory board uh, could be established, or at least um, calls for that by various uh, corporates and investors. Um, the exact date, I believe, still has to be announced. Um, and a bit later in the year, so there's the Ukraine Recovery Conference in London, 21st and 22nd of June. And this war insurance issue will be one of the main discussion topics. So hopefully there will be some some clarity on that. And um, throughout the year, there are obviously various trade exhibitions and business events. Um, um, for example, this week there was a uh, last week, sorry, uh, there was a, uh, a conference in Warsaw with a with a, by Re- Rebuild Ukraine, um, and there is again another iteration of this um, uh, conference in Warsaw uh, in uh, in November this year. So that's also obviously something to be watched. Okay, thank you, Alex. And um, this is probably a good forward-looking point where we can wrap up our today's discussion. And as we said in the beginning. The war is unfortunately um, not over yet. But after the initial period of shock and crisis response last year, the businesses now adapt to the new reality, reshape their strategies and find ways how to engage with the future opportunities arising uh, in Ukraine. We here at Global Council have also been working hard to support our clients with business critical insights, thought leadership and helping them on strategic planning. Please check the dedicated section on our website where you can find in-depth analysis, reports and recordings of our Ukraine-related webinars from the last year. 
please also sign up for our weekly newsletter where our multilingual and multidisciplinary team goes beyond the mainstream English language coverage and brings together insights from Ukraine, Russia, Europe, Asia, and further afield to help businesses understand the full global impact of the war. Thank you once again and stay tuned. For more insights, blogs and analysis, you can visit our website www.global-council.com and subscribe to our mailing list. And you can follow us on Twitter at global underscore council.